Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is Sean Murphy, the CEO and CTO of Titan Advanced Energy Solutions. Titan is an advanced battery management system technology company, which is revolutionizing the renewable space by lowering the cost of lithium ion batteries by at least 30 to 40% and doubling their expected life. Titan's technology uses ultrasound to measure and determine the state of health and state of charge real time and is about 100 times better than the current state of the art. This technology will eventually be implemented in electric vehicles, stationary storage, and consumer electronics. Previously, Sean was the founder and CEO of multiple successful startups, the former head of space science and technology for Draper Labs, and was also the founder and former director of Shell's innovation center called Shell TechWorks. We have a wide-ranging discussion in this episode, including Titan, where it fits in the broader battery landscape how the battery landscape fits in terms of the grid and the rise of things like solar and wind, and also how to think about all of this in the context of climate change. We then come back around to have a great discussion on the proper sources of capital for this type of innovation, the role of startups versus incumbents, and of course, the underlying motivators that make Sean get out of bed every day and give him purpose in his work. Without further ado, let's bring him out here, Sean Murphy. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. This interview is at Greentown Labs, where you guys have your office. And Emily, of course, came on the show, and Greentown's great, and I'm a Bostonian, which is a neighbor to a Somerville-ian. But Katie McDonald from Greentown is in the room, but she's not allowed to talk, so how is she going to do that? How is she going to make it through a whole show? She just has a big, huge smile, which is being covered with both of her hands, because that's how much it takes to cover it up. Do you want, Katie, you want to say one hello? Where are you going? One hello. Okay, let's get going. So I'm psyched for this interview. I actually was not aware of you and what you're up to, but when I was interviewing Emily, her and Katie said, you need to meet Sean. And the more I learned, I said, wow, like I need to get Sean on the podcast. This is kind of the same thing that happened when Emily talked about what you're doing. I said, wow, I really need to get on the podcast. So this is like this mutual love fest that's going on. So thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really, really, really psyched to be here. So what is Titan Advanced Energy Solutions? Titan Advanced Energy Solutions, we just call it Titan for short. What we do, we use ultrasound technology to measure the molecular state changes of the battery as it's charge and discharge and how it's aging. And with this, we created a real-time, in-situ, non-destructive measurement of batteries. And you say, wow, that's a mouthful of something. But what it means is that we have about a two orders of magnitude higher accuracy of measuring and controlling batteries. What kind of batteries are you referring to? These are all lithium-ion batteries. So basically, cell phones, cars, stationary storage, basically where the world is kind of moving right now is moving towards lithium-ion. Nobody working on lithium-ion ever mentions boosted board when they're going through their list of things for the batteries. That's an electric skateboard. So you're speaking my language. Not about the battery itself, but about the things it powers. 
basically, when you think about it, what is the usability? And the usability is how much capacity, because everybody knows how much your battery degrades over time. Your cell phone being an Apple or a Samsung doesn't really matter. After about two years, it goes down. The capacity constantly fades. And the reason why this capacity is fading is because you don't have accurate measurement of the precise voltage in charge. Who doesn't have the measurement? Apple, Samsung, the voltage car companies, all of them. What they're using, the traditional method of how they're measuring batteries is using a lookup table and a voltage measurement and the current measurement with temperature. And that goes back into a lookup table and then you say, oh, I am approximately 95% charged, but you have about 8% error. So if you think about a Gaussian distribution of your error rate, you're always overcharging and you're always undercharging the battery. And this micro overcharging and undercharging degrades the life of a battery faster than what usually would. So by stopping a little too early or going a little too long accidentally because there's a wide margin of error, the battery has a shorter life, which means they need to be replaced, which means more waste, which means more cost. That's exactly what it is. And there's two components to this aspect. If you have a higher accuracy, you do not have to have what is in the battery industry, what they have is a buffer. And they have a 10% buffer on the upper voltage range and a 10% buffer on the lower voltage range. And so 20% of every single battery that everybody uses is not utilized. And it's not utilized because of safety reasons because of your 8% error rate. If you go into those no-go zones, you will start splitting the basically the electrolyte and you start outgassing. So you'll produce helium. This is no-go meaning like overcharging? That's even worse. Undercharging, you start producing hydrogen. When you're overcharging, you start producing lithium plating. So there are multiple bad consequences on overcharging and undercharging. And this is one of those problems that you have fires in batteries, is that the BMS, battery management system, is really inaccurate. And it goes into these no-go zones. So how do companies prevent this explosions, fires, and all that? They create buffer zones. And those buffer zones increase over time. So constantly you're just shrinking the usable capacity of a battery. So the degrading is actually, it's like a fixed schedule? It's a schedule. That's correct. No way. Oh, yeah. That's exactly what's going on. Because they're preventing their liability. Because they're running blind. No, it's because they want to compress the upgrade cycle to sell more hardware. Well, that too. But if you are a car company or if you are create that, you're more concerned about liability. If you are maybe a cell phone company, your motivations might be slightly different. Well, I have lots of questions about what you do, but before we even get there, how did you get here? I would say I was a very inquisitive kid. I'll go a little bit further back into Norma. And so I always liked physics. So that's what I studied when I was on the younger days, but I was a serial entrepreneur. So every single thing after going and studying astrophysics, everything was, I want to get, want to start a company. So I started a company right after school, which was basically doing arbitrage between Eastern Europe and, and the US. Isn't that what all early 20-somethings do? Yeah, I think it, that's exactly what we do. Certainly what I was doing when I was 22. 
And then after that, I was like, okay, after that one, that one kind of sold successfully. So I said, okay, I'm going to go and go to school. So I went into B school. And then at MIT, I started, what was it, the 50K at that time? So that we won the 1K competition to create an ebook. And we did a lot of work around that. We got funded internally with the Brain and Cognitive Science Department and start doing gangbusters building ebooks for the educational market because always in my mind was this proliferation of knowledge is very important. But dot com comes, crashes that aspect of it. So I was like, okay, start new company. So the next one after that one I started was a fabulous semiconductor for creating security systems like chips in microchips. And that one actually was successful. It exited out nicely. And then I said, what do I do with myself? I was in my mid-30s. And I said, why don't I do space? Because I really, really loved space. Then I worked for Draper Laboratory. And in Draper Laboratory, started as a program manager, but on the end, I wind up being the head of Earth and Planetary Science Group. So I ran all of their science projects and had fantastic experience working on moon projects, Mars projects. This is all with NASA, of course. I'm so curious, as a serial entrepreneur at that point, why go park at essentially a, a research lab? I burnt out. It was 12 years of continuous startups, raising various rounds. And as I exited out, I was so burnt out. And I said, you know what? I considered it going into my midlife retirement. And it's absolutely right. Should I go there? It's fantastic. I mean, I would say the Draper Laboratory is like one of the most wonderful places in the world. It's the Willy Wonka military factory. So you were there for, what, five, six years? Eight years. And then at that time, the CTO of Shell gave me an offer that I could not refuse. I started working on some projects with MIT, with MIT Energy Initiative from Draper. And that's how I get to know the Shell people. I mean, one of the reasons I was interested to speak with you on the pod, not the only reason, but one reason is that you did dot-com stuff, you spent time in a research lab, you were in a big oil and gas company, and now you're building a battery startup. You might be the only, actually, I can say confidently, you're the only person I've ever met that's done all of those things. It's kind of funny. And I'm going to tell you a funny anecdote for that. This is a very interesting thing, because when I was interviewed at Draper, there is the VP of programs who would not report to him, but he was one in between. There was my boss who became Seamus, who is the director of space, but he was reporting to the VP of programs. And he looked at my resume and three startups, astrophysics, did Sloan. And he kind of looks at me and he says, Sean, it's like very impressive resume, but you don't have a single day of aerospace. What does it make you to work here? And I told him, well, that has nothing to do with it. You have to have a good brain, great attitude, and really perseverance to get things done. Let's get back to Shell, because I worry we're going to spend the whole episode talking about your background. What happened with Shell, they wanted to have a research center, but not a research center as an R&D center, but an execution, meaning deployment of technology. Because what they found out that internally in Shell, program is on average takes about six to 12 years to complete if it's successful. And in that process, it goes through about six, seven, or eight different management reviews, and about 80% of the programs gets killed. 
So they start a boatload of projects, but very few are completed and brought to market. So the proposition was to Shell was to create a fenced off organization that does not have oil and gas employees that will work very quickly on critical programs within the oil and gas and the energy sector. That was the critical part, energy sector, because I really wanted to work on renewables at time. When you say not oil and gas employees, you mean not people that came from industry? There was only one person out of 85 people that came from oil and gas industry. So it was a division of people that didn't come from industry that were working on industry-specific problems? That's correct. Wow, you guys must have been hated. Hated and loved at the same time. It was a hate-love relation. It was very, very interesting because we had biomedical, we have chemistry people from Johnson & Johnson, we have people from Aerospace Corporation, from NASA, from Draper, from the DoD, I mean, from the semiconductor space, from Intel. We just brought this whole group of cadre of 60 engineers that would just focus on breaking down what oil and gas has been doing for the last 30 years, systematically, and just improving it on orders of magnitude. And it was extremely successful organization. It still is. But they would get really, really angry at us, the traditional managers, because we would come there and not only would we invalidate their assumptions, that we would prove it mathematically, in product-wise, with improved systems, sometimes an order or two orders better. And they, they would just did not know what to do with us. Sometimes they would block us. Sometimes they would accept us. It depends on which group. And so how did you find your way into working on batteries? What we were trying to do at TechWorks was trying to get the spark on renewables. The story, how it all happened, was actually has to do with my co-founder, Sean O'Day. And I was at a conference that is hosted at the Tesla conference, and this was 2016, and it was... Ira Enfries does this, and this is the World Innovation Energy Innovation Forum. So Elon is there, and everybody kind of parades at that time. There's a lot of good host speakers. And there was Sean, who comes from the other co-founder. He comes from Synetics, which was IPP, basically kind of competing with Enel and the, those worlds. He saw me with the shell badge, and he started giving me crap at the bar, and he says, what is big bad oil doing over here? And what I said, well, what I'm doing, I'm trying to push us into. And he was for about two hours selling me on the concept of stationary storage. And I was like, holy moly, this is amazing. And I was not focused. My brain wasn't focused on that. So the first thing I did on that Monday, I call up Bloomberg and I call up McKinsey and I call up my other colleagues in Shell and I said, okay, I want to have uh, report everything about batteries within 30 days. And I uh, organized a workshop in Boston where they came and presented and I had all the data on batteries. And the follow-on is I try to push more batteries, the second-life batteries, to use for Shell. They didn't want to have anything of it. What does that mean, second-life battery? Second-life is meaning batteries that are coming out of EV cars are generally destroyed today because it's very hard to determine its true state of health. It takes about 8 to 20 hours 
to you have to hook it up you have to discharge it first then charge it and discharge it and you take a value that whole process takes about 20 hours and the equipment that does it is a classical cycler is between twenty thousand dollars for about four channels and sometimes a hundred thousand dollars for about 20 or 24 channels it's expensive equipment it takes a long time to do and what they do is they say that's not our business we are going to grind up the batteries mechanically chemically and thermally and you only recover about six percent of the battery at shell i was trying to figure out what to do with this thing they had did not want to do anything with it this thing being the 94 percent meaning second life i did not have the idea what to do i just wanted to do something in second life to move that six percent to a higher number to a higher number so we can be utilized. It can be for schools, it could be for hospitals, it can be for second world country, anywhere who doesn't want to pay the premium of $200 or $185 per kilowatt hour. Well, it's like a reconditioned laptop. That's correct. And there's a lot of people out there that will use it. But if you do it right, most people don't even know that that is a reconditioned thing because the performance is exactly the same. And nobody was doing this? Nobody was doing it. And shall I was like, okay, they didn't want to have anything to do with it. And I, we departed our ways. And then I went, spent the summer in Croatia and I tried to figure out how, how do I crack this nut? And in that process, I figured out if I use ultrasound and I can determine non-destructively on these used batteries very quickly, how much the state of health and state of charge it is. So did you just fall down in the shower and hit your head? No, 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 no. You see, this is a funny thing. I'm dangerous with a marker. So I usually have a board and a marker and I brought idea paint with me on my vacation. And I basically painted the wall where we were in the, the guest room. And I had my idea and I basically went through the fundamental equation of wave speed, going through a lithium ion battery, how much will change. I do the same thing on my vacations. Yeah, that was uh, some contention with the family at that time, because why am I right? And the whole wall was scribbled and trying to figure out. And basic came out of it that if I put a certain amount of energy, the change of the battery state of charge and state of health, that I would have a different signal. What made you so intent on solving the second life problem? My professional life was always driven to there has to be a cause. I have to do something that is meaningful for society, for environment, and for the people around me. Ebooks was proliferation of inexpensive books for the rest of the world. Rosetta was all about encryption, meaning that people cannot steal digital content. Space was how to move people into the second stage, which is basically getting inexpensively into space. And that was my kind of driver when I was a Draper. It's Shell. I really wanted to use Shell to get into green energy. That did not work out the way I wanted to. So I need to do this myself because having solving the second life, we would reduce all the batteries that are produced for cars, which cannot be used for cars, they can use for stationary storage. And that is a huge amount of reduction of the carbon footprint. What is stationary storage? Stationary storage is basically large battery packs in one concentrated area. If you think about a container, a shipping container, what you do is you put about 10 Teslas 
over 100 kilowatt hours inside of it. So usually that's like a megawatt. And then if you have that with wind, because wind is intermediate, so sometimes it blows, sometimes it doesn't. The same thing is with solar panels. Sometimes you get them peak energy sometimes. And then if you're getting the solar, let's use PV, for example. That would be a good example. During noon hour peak time, you can charge all those batteries during the peak amount of hour. And then when the people are using it, the mostly is around five or six when the, there's no sun. And so that way you can do a basically almost like a micro arbitrage. That way you reduce the overall cost of the system. So you use batteries as collecting the electricity generated by the photovoltaics during the daytime because you overproduce. So about some cases, 20-30% of the electricity that is produced by the field is just thrown away. But the cause for you that led you to work on this problem is fill in the blank. For me, is to reduce the overall cost of electricity and electrification through reduction of the cost of batteries. The reason why I wanted to do that, if we bring the price of batteries lower, than about $100 per kilowatt hour. And with the low cost of photovoltaics, we can completely reduce our dependency on hydrocarbons. Because those two equations, if you put them together, they basically break the cost structure of gas. So you're focused on stationary batteries? Originally, yes, that's what we did. But what happened was we realized that this technology is applicable for electric vehicles, that you can do real-time monitoring of electric vehicles. You can put them in stationary storage and in consumer electric devices. And the technology using this ultrasound, what is it actually achieving? If you send a pulse into the battery and it could be a cell it could be a module and module is multiple cells at the same time where a stack is multiple modules consistent of stack we can determine the state of charge of each cell or each module real time and we enable the battery to access additional capacity about 20 percent which extends its life the first part is you increase the, the volume. So if you're a car company, you get automatically 20% additional range. If you're a cell phone manufacturer, you get 20% more time. And if you're a stationary storage, you can reduce your capex by 20% and still maintain the same tender that you agreed with a local utility. And then the second part is because you do not overcharge and undercharge, you basically double the life of the battery. So instead of replacing the battery in five years or 10 years for stationary storage, you can replace it in 15 years or 20 years. Ultimately, you're envisioning that this will be horizontal across battery use cases. What's your initial market? Our initial market is second life. Because right now, we, that is easiest to come into. Specifically for EVs? This is EVs, and we are right now working with Nissan. We're about to start working with Mercedes. We are having conversations with Renault, Hyundai as well. So all of them are very interested because we came, we demonstrated how this thing works. Instead of that 18, 20 hours, we do it basically in a second. The, the results are always far greater than any other way. Do they make their own batteries? No, they buy the batteries from Panasonic, LG. So why are you working with the car manufacturer and not with Panasonic and LG? They're the owners of the battery because how the value chain is 
currently is once the battery manufacturers make the battery, they ship it just like if you would buy it in a store. They just have warranties behind it. So they, what the OEM does with them, that's their own business. And have any of these battery companies started climbing the stack and offering things like better monitoring? They do. But still, they're always using the old paradox of voltage, current, and temperature. It's like if you remember from Innovator's Dilemma that you have this S-curves, basically the S-curve of using current and voltage is coming to the top. So anything that you're adding on top of it, you're getting diminishing returns. So what does this compete with? Well, it competes with traditional BMS voltage and current. That's the mainstream technology. Are these car manufacturers doing it in-house or are they getting it through the battery companies? The people who uh, provide BMS systems are semiconductor companies. So it's Texas Instruments, Intel, Maxim. They all provide microcontrollers that basically measure current, voltage, and temperature, and they sell into the system. The same thing like for Apple and everyone else. So is this a replacement for those? First, we're going to do augmenting. Basically, we're going to create a microchip as well. That's what we design. And then we will just say, send the information to the current system. And when you say first, does that mean ultimately displace if you're successful? I think so. That makes more sense to reduce the cost or the bill of materials. So and how are you taking this to market? Is it direct to the car manufacturers? Right now, in the EV market is directly to the OEMs. In the second life is to the recyclers and to the OEMs in the stationary storage. We have investment from Schneider Electric, so we're working with them directly. They're the integrator in the stationary storage place. So basically we're partnering with them. So they will be the integrator that will work with the battery manufacturers and we will provide that component. With my climate change hat on, it's interesting because I hear again and again that batteries and storage are a big gap that's holding back the progress of clean energy. But on the other hand, Batteries and storage have their own footprint and their own waste and their own land use, et cetera. So how should one think about those trade-offs when assessing the, the role of batteries and storage? It's a very, very valid question. And the way we think about it is if you have a battery that lasts twice as long than the current one, that means you don't have to have a bigger footprint of long-term because usually how these contracts are set up is that you have to provide a certain amount of storage over time. And then they oversize the battery because they expect a degradation. And then for the next five years or 10 years, you always see these slabs of concrete that are put right next to the where the container is. Because in order to maintain the contract with the utility or with call it national grid or whatever it is, they all of a sudden after five years, I said to maintain that level of capacity, they add another storage. So this eliminates that whole process because instead of adding another container and building another whole battery storage, we're just optimizing the battery so well that you can do with the first container what you can do instead of with two. Like the way there's companies that are using things like AI to make the grid more efficient, you're essentially using ultrasound to make batteries, the battery footprint more efficient. That is absolutely true. That's the, the one of the best ways that anybody articulated in a single sentence would we or do. I fully credit beginner mind. I come in, I'm a dummy. I come in with no preconceived notions and I'm just trying to do active listening to figure this out. 
It's optimizing it on the molecular level. So basically, if you think about how batteries evolved, not just for cars, they were always controlled and designed by chemists. That's how usually all batteries are made in, in labs and all that. And the people who do it are electrical engineers. But this is a multidisciplinary approach because it's actually physicists who deal with waveforms. So, and that's never in the same food chain of building batteries. You don't have physicists because they do different things. In the EEs, do not talk to actually to the battery people. The battery manufacturer being A123 or Samsung and all that, they just buy a component. They're not involved early on into the design process. It just has to do with how the industry evolved over time in being in a semiconductor place or in the battery manufacturing place. They, they never went to first principles. And this is something that I always think as a physicist, I always go to first principles. What are we trying to achieve here? I'm trying to optimize the battery. Well, first was I'm trying to understand how I can understand the battery and not touch it galvanically or not opening the casing. And that was my first principle. And so I looked at spectroscopy, I looked at impedance, I looked at x-ray. So I looked at various kind of things. The one that was mostly economical and it can penetrate through many, many layers was ultrasound. Then later on, when we were doing in optimizing and creating a BMS, why are they not doing it this way? It came very obvious after once we were looking at it because the battery people they don't build BMSs. And BMS people, they don't make batteries. They meet far, far later in the food chain when both products are completely locked and ready to ship for market. So they didn't go to first principles to design. I'm going to design a battery with a designing a BMS that is optimized for this chemistry or for this system. They didn't even hire the people to even think about that. So what I did is a BMS, I went it all the way to first principles and started looking at the battery and trying to use physics in order to come, what is the most optimal way to measure and control a microfluidic device, which tend to be a battery. So just from a timeline standpoint, that whiteboarding and that epiphany, what year was that? And then at this point in time, snapshot, what does the business look like today? So that was August, September, 2016, the proof of concept came that December. We refined the formulas, put the signal through it. 2017, January, February, we start getting algorithms. In 2000, we built our first moving from lab equipment to first prototypes that was designed in March 2018. Summer 2018 was first prototypes. April 2019, second pre-production prototypes. For Second Life, we will have product in market, probably Q1 2020. And for probably Q3 for the consumer electronics market and of 2020, like pre-production and production in 2021. And the same timeline is for stationary storage. Are there formal relationships now with the car manufacturers or are they just discussions? Oh, no, no, no. These are paid research projects where in some cases we are going down the pipeline for to market. In some cases, it's in their R&D group uh, where they're basically evaluating before going to senior management. So is there more science to prove out at this point or is it more now about engineering and deployment? It's all engineering. It's basically cost optimization right now. 
And how has the business been capitalized to date? You mentioned Schneider. How much have you guys raised and who's involved? So it was Schneider and EIC, which is Energy Innovation Capital. There are, call it a scattered group because they're in San Francisco, but they're in Houston and Seattle. Their LPs are all, is it the big oil and gas companies that are their limited partners? It's not oil and gas. It's utilities where the most, and then Schneider, of course, is basically a component for electricity. So how much have you guys raised to date? We raised 10, 10 million. And because I have to say that MassCC was, they did a convertible note as well. And they were very critical to help us out as we were going through the last stages. I haven't talked to anyone at MassCC, but I heard that you can get some interns there. Oh my God, we love MassCC. Oh, can you help me get some interns from MassCC? Absolutely. All the listeners will hold you to that. Always a big shout out to MassCC because we have three interns per semester, four interns on a summertime, and they have been instrumental in helping us through this process. So it's, and of course, not to mention Greentown, which Emily and of course, Katie and everyone else on the staff helped us tremendously because not only did they incubate us throughout this process, but they're the ones who introduced us to Schneider. And there was a program called Bold Ideas. And the Bold Ideas was basically a $20,000 challenge that we would do a pitch to Schneider. And there were three or four companies. It was hundred and something companies. We were one of the four. But what it gave us to do is to navigate the insanity of a large company because they're a multinational company. And then we got to various people and it took a long time to navigate to the right people in Schneider that they saw this is a strategic thing for them. So how far is that 10 million gonna take you? What's the next big milestone that you're driving towards? I am a very frugal, economical person. So I'm not gonna go and go get steel case tables or you know start flying business class. So economy plus is always on the menu. And we always buy stuff off of auctions. So what we want to do is get to revenue through Second Life starting next year. And there's a lot of NRE, non-recurring engineering costs from OEMs. So we're hoping that the next time we raise another round will be for scaling and not for continuing getting customers. And that will take us about two and a half to three years. And then are there clear thoughts on a business model at this point, or is that still to be determined? Oh, no, no, no. It's, it's all lock and loaded. We're executing on that very, very clearly. What is the pricing structure? It depends on the market, meaning uh, because we need to build ASIC uh, components for consumer electronics. It's a different pricing structure, and that's more like a licensing deal. For automotive, is a licensing deal with reference designs. For stationary storage, is a component with our potential partners in the semiconductor industry. And for the Second Life, we will provide the device as a service and paper scan. So what does success look like in 10 years if you guys knock the cover off the ball? What have you done? We look at it, I've reduced the carbon footprint by extending the life of batteries by twice as much 
enabling multiple uses of batteries so they can be not only in the high-paying data centers, the UPS centers, and which is very expensive, but that same battery can be in a school. It can be in a second world country. It could be used in residential. Every efficient the cars will be so you don't have range anxiety. So when you drive your electric vehicle, you know exactly you have 50 miles to go or 22 miles to go. You can reduce the, the most expensive component in the car is the battery. For the same range, you can reduce it by 20%. And that's a big capital cost that can be used for another battery for another car, for another car, for another car. For consumer electronics, it comes in, you don't have to replace your device every two years. I think they might like it or not like it, but you have that option that your battery will last longer. You probably weren't asked this question when you raised money because most investors still don't care, but have you actually modeled out what kind of impact this can have relative to other climate solutions in in terms of GHGs? Actually, MassCC asked us that question. And nobody else, right? Before funding, only MassCC asked us. And that's because it's part of their charter. After funding, EIC asked us to send a slide over to see what is the carbon footprint reduction. Now, I do not know on top of my head. I can look it up and I can give you the numbers what that carbon footprint offset is. I'm less interested in the exact figure and I'm more interested in just kind of thumb in the air. Is it an incremental swing or a big swing? I know that financially I get it. It's a big swing. And then enabling you know products to be more attractive so they can win versus their customers in crowded markets. I get that part too. It's a big swing. It really reduced. You don't need to use the batteries again, because if if you think about instead of building a whole another battery, doing the packaging, sending it off, shipping lithium from the mines in Africa, putting the packaging together, assembling it in China, and then you shipping it to the United States, going through the whole value chain just so you can get another price of it instead of it's already shipped, it's already manufactured, and what it needs is just to give it a price point to say this thing has 77% state of health, it's good for another 700 or 3,000 cycles. If you use it this way, you integrate it, this is the value to it, and it can be used for residential or school or whatever. So I think at this point in the discussion, I'm going to say, okay, I get that it can have a a meaningful impact. I get that it can also have meaningful kind of second and third order impacts because it's not just about the waste and the efficiency, but by making an EV, for example, reducing range anxiety, it makes EVs more widely adopted. By making EVs more widely adopted, it helps us electrify faster and get us off of fossil fuel, right? So all that I get. So what I'd love to talk about now is what's the best way to fund a company like this? Is it a good fit for traditional venture capital? This is a fantastic question because that was the question that we asked ourselves when we say, who do we partner with? Because this was for us, meaning when we went down this path, we had a series of maybe about 100 venture capital. But what we always understood was we needed to find a strategic partner. Because who is our strategic partner into it? And after about 
five, six months of looking who has the right attitude, who is committed to the electrification, who wants to reduce the carbon footprint, and all those things came to be a Schneider. So is there any traditional VC that's in the deal? Well, EIC is a traditional VIC, VC. And what made you think that you needed a strategic or that a strategic made sense? The strategic was because they can scale the technology globally because they would have that outreach, especially Schneider is so involved in grid scale. They're so involved of doing this electrification. They support all the utilities around the world. So implementing this technology through them as upstream through the value chain, you basically increase the speed of adoption in electrification of the 21st century. Okay, well, I have a few questions just to kind of pressure test and also crystallize your view of the world on this topic, because I think it's an important one, the whole, like, how do these companies scale? So one question I have is, do you think there's a capital gap for this kind of tough tech business? And if so, what stage? So you see, it's very hard to get capital for hardware companies, I have to say. We went, usually if you're a software company and you're Silicon Valley and you get this and that, next thing you know, you raise money much easier. And do you think that's warranted? Just strictly from a mercenary financial investor standpoint? That's what the market says. That's what it does. Do you think the market is rational? They're greedy. <laughs> it's not. And, and the other part is hardware is hard. It's not easy. To build hardware is not easy. It takes multidisciplinary, so that means multifaceted things need to be done. The value chain is complex. It's not as simple. There's, and especially if you don't have an already pre-baked platform, like an iOS or a Microsoft or whatever it is, all of a sudden, all those barriers when investors who are very hard to educate because this is the problem with the venture capital thing right now. You have a very small amount of time to educate them. And educating them and getting them over the hump of that risk. When you say small amount of time, what, what do you mean? It took us maybe six months to get them really educated. So understand, because you go there and you have a one meeting, they're going to yawn or going to run away. A lot of them just going to run for the hills because they say, well, my dollar, if I put it in software, I'm going to get a better return. If education is the problem, then rather than just having a first touch when you're out raising, and I'm not saying you did that, but wouldn't that just suggest that that could be mitigated at least partially by building those relationships over time? That's exactly what we did. When I say educated, it's building those relationships continuously, proving them and bringing customers. I cannot stress enough how much our customers, our OEMs, how much Enel helped, how much did Mercedes help, how much all of these, they helped educate our investors. So is there a capital gap? Yes, there is. And what stage? Series A. Got it. And is it about educating existing VCs or is it a different kind of structure? And if different, what are the differences? See, I would say both. And one thing is there's very few capital intensive VCs per se. Some of them are considered medical. But if I look at the companies that are investing into energy, and for the good is breakthrough. They have long-term breakthrough energy ventures. And they do R&D, and they've been investing into batteries. So they are supporting that. But there's very few companies, traditional VCs, like breakthrough. And there's needs to be more. And so 
is the biggest difference between a breakthrough and a traditional VC the longer time horizon? It's longer time horizon, a mandate to focus on energy because sometimes these funds are focused on biomedical or software consumer or IoT. And even today, when they think about IoT, they think software. They don't think hardware. If you have two companies, one says, I'm going to make a little widget that's going to implement IoT. And the other one says, I have a software that's going to implement existing widgets. They will always go with the implement on existing widgets. It's just unfortunate, but true. So you mentioned Capital Gap, and it's partially about educating and partially about maybe bringing some people in that have expertise in energy and also patience and deep pockets to wait out the energy requirements and time horizons. And the returns are fantastic once you score on our hardware because the barriers to entry. But it's a different profile. And so in some cases, it can be square peg and round hole. So that makes sense. What are the biggest obstacles to Titan being successful? Timelines. The OEMs and the automotives are extremely slow. They're very, very conservative. It takes years. And we expect to, in order to get to market, it'll take four or five years. So then one business opportunity potentially is almost like a hedge. It's like copying you guys, but waiting 24 months. No, no, no. It's exactly what it is. And But you see, the way how we offset it is that stationary storage is on a 24-month cycle. Second life is right now. So all of a sudden, we have these four markets, Second Life, Stationary Storage, Consumer Electronics, and Automotive. They all to market is at different time cycles. So, But that is the risk. So our timing is to be smart about which adopts market first and how much they adopt to fund, not only fund the money to support the long term for the automotive and stationary storage, but transfer the know-how that we have learned on these so it's constantly reinforcing each other. Just to bounce back to the capital one for a minute, so we talked about the Series A gap and then there's strategics. Are strategics the best source of that growth capital or is there a gap there as well? I think the strategics are pretty good partners in that case. And the reason why is because they have a global outview of the market and they have contracts with countries. They have the know-how how to scale this. And this was always the same thing I, when, when I was at, at Shell. You can develop a fantastic technology, but how do you implement it globally? How do you scale it? That's always the problem with the startup. You don't want to go through the scaling process. You want to find a partner that utilizes your, so you have a win-win scenario. They have the marketplace. They want to have a competitive advantage. You implement that key component technology for them. And so you have a win on both sides. And of course, it comes down. It's not just good enough to say it's the company. You have to have the right people within the company in the right mandate. So the risk is there that you have to have the right connection, meaning the right person into it, the right champion within the company. They have the mandate and the capital and the external forces naturally that it's conducive for this type of thing. And how does the regulatory landscape factor in, if at all? A lot. And that's what we're finding out. There's more and more regulation occurring to lithium-ion, shipping lithium-ion on plane between states in the United States, between countries in Europe, shipping from one country to another. And there is a new laws that will be kicking in, and that's being under very, very big debate right now of how do you ship used batteries between one state to another or in one country. And right now, one of the propositions are that we're working with 
with is to work on this thing in the European Union that we provide the services that you can do a quick test very quickly to determine what is the state of health and state of charge. Because right now, one thing is that you can't ship used batteries unless the state of charge is less than 30%. So this is interesting, and this allows me to pressure test kind of a follow-up from something that I talked about with Ramya from Malta on her episode. But if the regulatory landscape is important and it needs to shake out a certain way to be more favorable for the company, then who's doing that work and is that work important for your company's success? Oh, it is. We don't factor it in our financials because you never can count on regulatory aspect. But we know that that's one of the things that we, we're going to join certain conferences. We're going to join certain organizations that participate so we can educate the regulatory bodies that right now you can determine for safety reasons. You can determine the state of health and state of charge of all of these batteries being used or new, and you can safely determine which ones are going where across certain borders. So what's the answer though? Like for a company like this, where you have a bunch of challenges before you even get to the regulatory stuff, if the regulatory stuff is important, how do you think about whether to build those resources out in-house, rely on them from somebody like your investors, look to trade groups or hire a consultant. We're doing all the above. It's so funny because we are working directly with Schneider on this for the European, especially because Schneider is a French company. So they're looking internally how to do this. There is a consultant that we are interviewing, and they're actually one of them who comes from this space and who is going to help on behalf of us work with the trade organizations to put this in place because they really current do not know or understand how our technology works. So I asked you about the capital gap, and you answered that and said you think there is at the A round. Is there an advocacy gap? And if so, what does that look like? I guess it's fair to say I don't know. And the reason why I say I don't know, because this is just a, such a brand new way of looking at, at the battery. Because one of my ideas, because I've heard of that capital gap from other hardware, tough tech types of companies, right? And so it's like, okay, so capital gap is one area of white space for these kind of important breakthrough technologies. But what about regulatory? And especially as you get into some of these later stage rounds, what if you had those under one roof and had a firm that spent as much time in DC and in the States as it does in the Valley? How do you educate the market about this can be done multiple ways. You can do it through, of course, through nonprofits, through states. Through, there's many ways. I mean, Greentown does advocacy all the time. I mean, what they do is quite remarkable because they educate the corporates, they educate uh, through, I know the governor comes over here, Governor Baker comes over here, the senators come over here, and they push to give them education of what where the gaps are. So in many ways, the advocacy, but there's only one green town. If you ask me, I would like to see 20 green towns in the United States pushing for this. And it could be Greentown or it could be Greentown equivalent because this is a safe harbor that has the right type of, how would I call it? It's not only words, it's deeds. And the deeds are here evident all the time. And that is far more important than just having PowerPoint slides and some explaining to bureaucrats. I mean, you can see 
day in and day out how much there's energy being worked to show how this thing is going, being from funding perspective, from sending technology to the market. I buy that because it's interesting. I mean, it's a very, you'll think it's a strange analogy to tie into the discussion, but I heard that in some countries, the nuclear plants are much closer to the cities and they're much more open to the public and they give tours and things like that. And in places that do that, there's a lot less resistance to nuclear because there's a much better understanding of it. And so to some extent, you can tie that same analogy to the regulatory landscape where if you're just showing up in DC once a quarter with a PowerPoint deck, that's going to be much different than if you have someplace like a Greentown or other where they can see it, they can meet the people, they can build relationships, they can understand it, they can feel the energy. You need to. It's very funny because when I was about 12 years old, I went on a tour of a nuclear plant and it was like four hours and it was fantastic. And because it took all those fears. And then later on, of course, studying physics and understanding all that stuff, you, I understood how little danger there is. And there's no fear to it at all. Just it's kind of finding ways to bridge the gap then in terms of just getting more exposure across the DC crowd and the innovation community, for example. In the DC crowd is a difficult crowd because it's it's cluttered. It's not that it's that there's a certain amount of bandwidth that a politician or government can take and everybody's going there. And it could be from the carbon emissions to the EPA to all of our national parks. It could be from water. It, there's so many issues. Well, stick with me. I bought a couple of DC suits and I think I can help you. So, so here's a pointed question for you then. If you could wave a magic wand and change one thing to accelerate your progress, what is it? It is to get and have the larger systems, such as the utilities, such as the car companies and all that, to see the benefit and not be driven by traditional economics, meaning by fear or it's a new product and God knows it could, ha it could fail, it could do this. Just go through the standard adoption rate, but not resist it. Meaning saying it is important for us to go to the 21st century, electrification, reducing of carbon. If I have two products right next to each other and one reduces the carbon and one does not, even if it's 5% more expensive, choose that one. Certain companies get the value of brand, right? And they invest in brand and it's very hard. You can't directly track all the ROI from investment in brand, but if you believe in brand, you invest in it and it pays dividends over time. In a way, being green and pushing towards carbon neutral or carbon negative is similar. In a way, it's different because it's not just about greenwashing and like putting a fancy coat of paint on and saying, we're green, right? But, but actually, you're doing the right thing and that feels good. But by doing the right thing and having it feel good, maybe if you just look at short-term quarter to quarter, it looks like an irresponsible thing to do. But there's a big drag along of positivity that comes with that because then you get more loyal employees, you attract better employees, you attract better partners, you surround yourself with people that play the long game, and that leads to better products, better teams, better culture, and ultimately better results. Maybe not in quarter one, right? But it's, a, it's like an investment in brand. Exactly. It's in quarter six, quarter seven, and the dividends start. It's like the story of the Chinese bamboo. You know, when they say you're, you water it for five years and nothing comes out. And in the year five, it starts growing almost an inch a day. And that's exactly the same thing.
One other topic I want to cover, and we're, we're already getting a, a little long in the two, so we should probably wrap up pretty soon, but we've talked a lot about Titan. It'd be great to take a step back and just talk big picture about the climate fight. So if you weren't building Titan and you weren't trying to generate returns for all the different stakeholders that you've committed to and stuff, and you could be doing anything in the world to maximize your impact on the climate fight that wasn't this, what would it be and why? So one thing that is abundantly clear right, right now comes back to that capital gap. And the reason why I say it's a capital gap because I'm going through raising Series A. It took us about eight months. And in that, I probably pitched to over 140 different organizations. And what I came to realize is that there is very, very few companies or VCs, traditional or strategics, that have that mandate, that have that understanding of that long term and that aspect. And if I would have a thought or a thing to do, let's say that we exit nicely, is to create a VC or could be a not B Corp or whatever it is that supports these type of hard problems that can be addressed and funded even at the seed stage or angel stage and a series A stage. And that's what I would be doing because it's how to capture those minds, how to capture those that they that we're going to sit there and not everything is about that 10x return or 5x return. It's more of this is what we need to do. This is how we need to move forward. And that's what I would do. If you think about those sources of capital, where's the best place for those to come from? And also, if you look at the upside, if you look at the time horizons, if you look at the risk or something else that I'm not even thinking about, do you have to concede on anything in order to chase the mission or, or can you have your cake and eat it too? It's a two-pronged thing. I think where, where you want to go is first you want to go to the family offices. I think that's one of them. Because the family offices around the world, they want to do something good for the world. So you have to find the right ones. So that would be number one. Number two is you have to find some companies that have this long-term vision. And you just align yourself. So between those two groups, I think there's plenty. Okay, so we just talked about what you'd be doing with your time. Now let's take you out of the equation. So if you had $100 billion and you could put it towards anything to maximize its impact on the climate fight, where would it go? How would you allocate it? And why? A third of it would go to advocacy. A third of it would go probably making incubators like Greentown Labs around the world. It doesn't have to look like Greentown. and It would definitely be a version of this. And if you think about it, in Eastern Europe, which you're, you're dealing with almost 150 million people, and there's not a single thing like this. So that was a third and a third. Where does the last third go? Well, advocacy, Greentown, which is accelerators, and the third one will be investments. Because one of them is educating, another one is implementing, another one is supporting. So all three worked with each other and moved the needle forward. And last question. So I guess people have all different reasons for listening to this podcast, but a large chunk of them listen because they are concerned about climate change and they're trying to figure out how they can be helpful. So talk to them for a minute. What advice do you have? How should they go about finding their spot? Well, the most important thing is to get educated. And not, I'm not talking about the naysayers or the climate deniers and all the rest of stuff, but there are complexities in the climate change. 
because you can go from heliophysics and understand the cycles of the sun, which inf affects the atmosphere, which affects how much that energy is absorbed and it goes into the oceans and how does that, in that sometimes is in weather patterns, but sometimes it affects the climate as well. Because you can see that we have been going waxing and waning between small and large ice ages before we ever created any type of carbon footprint. So read the history, really get into it, educate yourself, not only for debates with your friends over coffee, but educate yourself that you can have to make life choices. Because ultimately, everything is about a life choice. Who do you vote for? What car do you buy? What product do you buy? And it all kind of wraps around that what we do here in the United States affects people in Africa, and what people in Africa do affects people in China, and what people in China do affects them. This is a system. You have to think about it as a system, and the more knowledge you have, the better choices you can make. And when you make better choices, think about it in terms of society and environment. And it's a very important thing to do. A friend of mine told me something very nice the other day. And she said, it's not that we inherit the earth from our friends, but we are, I can't even remember exactly how it was, but basically we need to set up the future for the future generations. And so we right now have to think about how do we do this thing for the future? And if we behave the same way as the Victorian Englands did, which was basically exploit everything in front of your site, or how the 20th century happened, there will be no future for our offspring. It will be a bleak, ugly place. So make right decisions, educate yourself, be proactive, and think about our Earth as a living, breathing system. I think that's a great point to end on. So Sean Murphy, thanks so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you, Jason. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note, that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.